Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. Many patients and families are interested in discussing end-of-life care with their physician. Most expect their physicians to initiate the conversation. However, providers are trained to maintain health and fight illness, but typically receive little guidance on how to communicate with terminally ill patients and their families. End-of-life discussions must go beyond the narrow focus of resuscitation and include a dialogue that addresses the broad array of concerns shared by patients and families. In today's episode of Neuropathways, we're discussing end-of-life care and what role physicians play in helping patients make hard decisions. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. I'm very pleased to have Ed Benzel join me for today's conversation. Dr. Benzel is Chairman Emeritus of the Department of Neurosurgery and a neurosurgeon in the Center for Spine Health in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. Ed, welcome to Neuropathways. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. So let's get started. End-of-life care means reaching patients in their most personal and vulnerable times, and it requires physicians to become comfortable discussing mortality. Can you give our audience perspective on how to start a conversation regarding end-of-life care once a patient is diagnosed with a terminal illness? Well, there are probably as many strategies as there are clinical scenarios. In general, if it's reasonable to do such, providing a shot across the bow, as they say, is a reasonable way to break the ice. For example, if you don't have all the information yet, but it looks like we're dealing with a malignant tumor, we can present the information in a way that it leaves some hope for long-term survival thus allowing the patient and the family to gradually come to terms with the the ultimate diagnosis. But I emphasize the most important thing that the physician who is transmitting information to a patient and family is the employment of empathy, making eye contact, being concerned, listening, really listen. Do not break silence. Sometimes emotional patients are just received the diagnosis of a malignant cancer, they may become tearful and not say something for a while. The worst thing we can do in that circumstance is to interrupt and break the silence and not allow the patient to take the conversation in a trajectory which would probably have much more meaning. Try to be a realist. So many times I see patients where the doctors have sugarcoated life expectancy or not talked about life expectancy whatsoever. And I think it's just most reasonable to be a realist, not a pessimist, nor an optimist, and to always be honest. If the patient asks a question, answer it honestly, because that's what they want to know. They should be assured that they will be in control. There will be decisions that need to be made that they will make. We need to empower the patient. I like to use the term, allow them to drive the bus. We tend to be paternalistic in medicine, and having the patient be in control uh, means a lot to them. Bottom line, establishing a relationship based on honesty. So, Dr. Benzel, that was very sage advice that you gave, and you sort of hit on my next question a little bit. 
And that is really the time frame of your evolution as a, as a practitioner. So once a terminal diagnosis is given, I assume most physicians lean on what they learned in training uh, to initiate the dialogue with the patients and the families. Can you discuss your personal journey and how it has evolved over time? I think you sort of foreshadowed just a little bit with the paternalistic side of things, but what's your personal journey been with this? Well, I uh, trained, I finished my training 40 years ago. That was uh, a long time ago by my, my account. There was no communication training at the time a physician was either empathetic or they weren't. I feel, at least I, I think I was always empathetic and listened to patients, but many physicians didn't. You can work on these skills too, which I think I have done over the years. It's something that can be learned, just like a surgical skill, learning to keep empathy at the top of your consciousness and always be listening and never interrupting. Uh, these are things that take a little uh, getting used to, so to speak. Uh, and again, over the years, I've absorbed information. Early on with the Cleveland Clinic Foundations of Healthcare Communication Program, I was a, a facilitator, and that helped me immensely to understand how to communicate more effectively. This program also touches every physician and trainee in the Cleveland Clinic, and I think it's a, a great way to establish some sort of a standard of communication care, if you will, it's sort of like providing an instructional manual for communication, whereas before there was none. Hence, more and more physicians have become skillful in this arena, such is most certainly the case for me. So, Ed, are there still times that you feel you need to be more paternalistic? Yes, occasionally, and this is rarely, but occasionally I'll have patients that act like a juvenile. And they're making completely irrational decisions. Family members may be upset. And in those circumstances, I will take over the steering wheel and I will drive the bus because what I don't want is for the patient to be harmed. So, Dr. Benzo, would you say this approach works for all patients? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think that the number of scenarios uh, are equal to the number of patients that are encountered with this disease. Uh, each patient is unique and requires an approach that is tailored for them. Social variables, family support or lack thereof, preconceived notions, et cetera, make each case very different from the one before. Part of the physician's skill set involves the ability to individualize and tailor communication strategies. Some patients want full control, others want uh, the doctor to decide. In the extreme, the physician may be required to become paternalistic, but that is an extreme situation. For the most part, the physician should guide the patient to make the best decision for themselves that they can. There is truly no instructional manual here, although the Foundations of Healthcare course does help us in this arena. So, Dr. Benzer, would you say that we've seen progression with how physicians, surgeons are being trained for this type of discussion? And if not, what changes should be adapted for current and future physicians? Well, without question, we've definitely seen improvement over the decades. When I trained, being sensitive was literally frowned upon. Um, that was in the days 
of the tyrant surgeons who ruled in part by fear. Expectations have changed and behaviors have changed, all for the good. Bottom line, we continue to evolve. Physicians and surgeons are becoming more and more empathic and hence obligatorily have become better communicators. So, Dr. Benzo, you've been recognized, rightly so, as a national leader when it comes to caring for patients with life-ending conditions, as noted in Atul Gudwani's best-selling novel, Being Mortal. Can you elaborate on the care you provided to his father and touch on any similar cases that might help others in the field? When I met Dr. Gawande's father, who was a urologist, uh, a surgeon himself, in his mid-70s, he was very active and had minor functional impairment and was functioning at a very high level. He had been having problems with coordination and clumsiness, and an MRI showed a very impressive and large and extensive a lesion in the spinal cord of his cervical spine. It appeared to be non-resectable, and it looked like an astrocytoma, which ultimately it turned out to be. He was uh, turned off by one of the other physicians that he had seen back in Boston and who'd recommended surgery urgently. After listening closely to the things uh, he said that he really valued uh, time with family to be in control, work, et cetera, I recommended a more conservative approach. After he chose me as his doctor, I watched him for a couple of years, at which time he began to deteriorate more rapidly, and we decided it was finally time to do something. A laminectomy was performed, removing the bone over the cervical spine. Screws were placed to stabilize the spine, and the dural sac, or the sac around the spinal canal, and the spinal cord was opened to give him more room. We did a biopsy, and it turned out to be a malignant astrocytoma. The life expectancy from time of first symptoms to death is about two to five years with this tumor, and uh, we counseled him accordingly, and he was well-informed up front. You might ask, uh, why didn't you do that sooner? Well, It's a big operation, one that can be associated with complications, infections, spinal cord injury, et cetera. And after a big operation like that, for patients with terminal diseases, life is never the same. And it wasn't. So my goal, in a sense, was to give him as much high quality of life before we stepped it down to a lower quality of life with a diagnosis and then ability to treat. My goal essentially was to optimize overall volume quality of life. Dr. Gawande, the patient, was a remarkable person in that he made many decisions based on information that he gathered. And uh, I let him drive the bus. He made the decisions. His decisions were, for the most part, exactly what I think I would do under similar circumstances. Most importantly, they were his decisions. He was empowered to control his destiny, in a sense, based on the realistic data that uh, we presented to him. This type of case is not all that uncommon, and we need to be more cognizant of different clinical scenarios. I recall, in this vein, taking care of a 40-year-old gentleman with squamous cell carcinoma metastatic to the uh, base of the skull and the upper cervical spine. He had involvement of his brainstem, 
and was dysarthric and was aspirating, had a lot of pain. And I was put under immense pressure by his treating physicians to do a spine operation to stabilize his skull to his spine. And although that may indeed have helped him with regard to the pain he was having, upon further scrutiny, it appeared that most of his pain was occurring at nighttime. And because of the diurnal variation of cortisol, it naturally goes down at night. And when pain increases at night in cancer patients, it's often called biologic pain. And we gave him a bump of prednisone every evening and significant amount of his pain was eliminated. Interestingly, he went home. He slept in the same bed with his wife, was with his children, which probably wouldn't have happened if he'd had a big operation. And he died a couple of months later. I think he and we made a good decision in this case. A point to consider here is a phenomenon called the break point. Gawanda talks about it a lot in his book, but it's the point at which we as clinicians quit being concerned with and focusing on length of life, but rather start focusing on quality of life. Interestingly, there are some studies that show that when physicians start looking at the quality rather than the volume of life, people actually, in fact, have a higher quality of life and live longer. And I think we need to be cognizant of this and not keep over-treating. We, we treat too much, in my opinion. So during the past year of COVID, at one point, I think the Cleveland Clinic was doing 80% of the visits via telemedicine. I'm curious how you feel as a surgeon, it affected your ability to give the empathy that you would normally have sitting beside a patient Uh, Did you find it was the same? It was more difficult? It was easier? What do you have to offer us? I think it's a little bit more difficult, uh, but I think also that we've gotten pretty good at virtual visits. Um, I think it's handy in a way. You can handle things. People don't have to come back for post-operative visits, or you can do a screening maneuver before the patient makes a long trip to come to the Cleveland Clinic from a land far away. On the other side of the coin, It is harder to express empathy and having an end-of-life conversation. I've never had one virtually, but I would really try to avoid that if I could. So Rabbi Harold Kusher, who wrote uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, I read uh, something about you where you were at a conference, I believe, and you can correct me on this, where... He was talking about people sort of at the end of life and talked about pain and abandonment. Can you talk about that a little bit in your practice and how it touched home with you and maybe changed how you looked at things? Yeah, this was about 35 to 40 years ago. I was uh, then at the LSU in Shreveport, Louisiana, and I had a sort of an emotional situation, a 26-year-old lady with neurofibromatosis, and metastatic breast cancer to the spine. She was kind of a loner. No family came up. Nobody came to see her. And uh, I operated on her and improved her function. And then I went off to this meeting, the American Association of Neurologic Surgeons. And every year at this meeting, there's a oration given by somebody who's not a neurosurgeon called the Cushing 
oration. And this year it was uh, Rabbi Kushner. And he grabbed me like probably no other speaker has. He, he talked uh, a lot about death and dying and, and he did refer to the notion that when people with a terminal illness become adjusted, if you will, to, to the nature of their problem, they fear two things. One is pain, so please treat these people's pain. And the second is abandonment. That hit me like a ton of bricks. I went back and every night I'd make it a point at the end of rounds to go and just sit and talk with her. We talk about her family, talk about her, talk about my family. And I think we both gained uh, and grew a lot from those conversations. Well, Ed, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time and insights. Thank you very much. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our ConsultQD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word. And thank you for listening.